Larry DuPont recalled that somebody said it could really benefit from a string quartet. So somebody else called out for one, like they were calling out for a pizza. And these four guys turned up driving Rolls Royces. They got to listen to the basic track. They were given a little verbal direction as to what was wanted and where it was going to. And then they played the part and left. In and out, back into the Rolls Royces, and away. Think about is Sparks, the All Sparks All the Time podcast. I'm your host, Christian Huey, and today I'm going to explore the story of the last year of Sparks as a fledgling gang of Los Angeles weirdos and the cultural epiphany that hit the UK and Sparks about one another that led to Ron and Russell becoming European superstars by 1974. Oh, wait, I'm not? No. Okay, well, that will come in the next episode or two. It turns out there's just so much to say about their second album, A Woofer and Tweeter's Clothing, before they even set foot in England, that it would be doing their last year as a purely regional American band a huge disservice. So today, I'm going to take a cold, hard look at that weirder, darker, and riskier album to its predecessor, and take a moment to celebrate the final recorded output of Sparks Mark One. But before I indulge you all in Sparks' past, I hope you'll indulge me in the first of what I assume will be many editorial corrections. In episode 3, I asserted that it was unknown whether Alice Cooper knowingly borrowed and altered the title No More Mr. Nice Guys for his 1973 hit. According to friend of the podcast, Rude Swart, he did ask the males if he could use it, but only after they rejected his request to use the line from Beaver O'Lindy from the album I'll discuss today, I'm the girl in your head, but the boy in your bed. Also, I had praised the wrong musician for the guitar solo in Mr. Nice Guys. That was actually performed not by Earl Mankey, but by younger brother Jim. Thank you for setting the record straight, uh, Rude. And uh, one last thing before I hop into the Just Got Back From Heaven machine and set the dial for 1972. There are two new-ish Sparks releases out by the time you hear this podcast. Ron and Russell have released the three-disc anthology Past Tense, which is packed with some fun surprises among the usual contenders and um, covers a mind-kerploding 50 years of Sparks music. 
maybe of even greater interest to the devoted is the 25th anniversary edition of Gratuitous Sax and Senseless Violins. That's Ron and Russell's umpteenth musical reinvention from 1994, then as a progressive Euro dance act. Uh, this new expanded edition has a bonus disc of remixes and a third disc with scads of up to now unreleased demos, including the unreleased EP with then drummer Christy Hayden. Go do yourself a favor, pick up a copy or three, and now dance, goddammit, by which I mean on with the show. After a challenging experience playing and surviving a gig in Houston, an exhausted Sparks dragged their collective corpses back to L.A. to regroup and plan their next attack. They had earned their exhaustion. Wonder Girl was a hit in a few truly esoteric markets, and they traversed vast swaths of the country to play a relative handful of shows. But then, what could you do? The United States was a big damn country, and you've got to go where the work is. The band and their management were pleasantly surprised by the level of demand in far-flung spots on the map like Montgomery, Alabama and Fargo, North Dakota. They had burned through at least one rental car, racked up an emergency room bill, and may have faced death by exposure in the Pecos Valley, close to where I live, were it not for some friendly Mexican nationals in a pickup. Plus, they were likely out of money. Luckily, Bearsville Records believed their investment in Sparks was on its way to paying off. The band just needed to ride the momentum they had straight into the recording studio for album number two. This time around, however, Todd Rundgren was called out to London to produce a new album by Welsh power pop act Badfinger, so he would not be at the boards this time around. It was just as well. Although Sparks and Rungren had appreciation and respect for one another, James Lowe was the bigger Sparks fanboy, and he and the band had better chemistry and seemed to understand each other better than with Rungren. Lowe booked several sessions at Wally Hyder's studio to put together a demo. Everyone agreed to start with a new composition by Ron, Girl from Germany. The title adumbrated the direction Sparks would take on the second album, A Woofer in Tweeter's Clothing. Released in the U.S. in October or November in 1972, depending on your source, and in the U.K. and Europe in early 1973, blew a dark and dense kiss to the cabaret music of the Weimar Republic. If the debut album paid nearly no dues to blues-based American rock and roll, this new album hugged the exotic and slinky sounds of pre-rock Europe even tighter. Appropriately and providentially, this was the album that preceded Ron and Russell's auspicious reset of Sparks in the UK. It's unclear what inspired that musical direction, although Dara Islia in the biography Talent is an Asset offers up the contemporary musical Cabaret by Bob Fosse as a possible enticement. Sparks continued to confound Bearsville owner Albert Grossman, whom they knew had who, who knew they had something, but was frustrated by the band's inability or unwillingness to exploit what that something was. 
He had the sense there was money being left on the table. He had learned from his time managing Bob Dylan not to stand in the way of artists and their art and refrained from offering too many suggestions save one. He couldn't understand the words Russell was singing. He recommended they mic him closer and mix him louder. It didn't work. It turned out it was always Russell's odd pan-European accent while singing that rendered many of Sparks's lyrics inaudible to him. Whatever the band was doing in the studio, Lowe loved it. He was convinced he was producing a hit. Ron and Russell were the clear creative directors for the recording of Woofer, while Earl Mankey filled Lowe's former shoes as the album's engineer. All five members of the band shared writing credits once more, but Ron, who was growing exponentially as a songwriter, would write the majority of the songs. Russell put a button on the europhilic vibe by writing and singing a song, actually co-writing with Ron, and singing a song called What Else? The Louvre. Entirely in French. Well, there was a compromise. When they actually did record the song, it ended up being the half-French, half-English song that was put on the album. All parties agreed that of the newly recorded demos, Girl from Germany and a rocked-out version of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Do, Re, Mi had the biggest commercial potential as radio singles. Maybe it was all the excited anticipation over recording the full version of Girl from Germany that caused Lowe to dump a scalding cup of coffee in his lap by accident one night. Or maybe not. But the fact is, he skipped a visit to urgent care to keep his studio booking one morning. That is dedication. Girl from Germany. The curtain rises on a woofer in tweeter's clothing with Girl from Germany, essentially a Wonder Girl 2.0. In case there was anyone who missed Sparks' European flavor on the first album, Ron Mayle's lyrics and Russell's vocals make the Euro theme explicit at the starting gate. The song begins with Earl Mankey strumming an unassuming A major chord for a couple of short bars. Soon, Jim steps in with his bass in lockstep before Russell's voice makes its debut to reintroduce Sparks to whomever was listening in late 72, early 73. Ron employs something sounding like a harpsichord, of course, a favorite of Johann Sebastian Bach, thank you, who was a German, of course. For a few sparse flourishes at first, and eventually as a rhythm instrument to match the guitar parts. In the song, the narrator takes his date home to meet his parents, who, being of the World War II generation, are horrified to learn she's from Germany. I guess presumably West Germany, now that it's 1972. The entire song has the young male lover trying to get his traumatized parents to decouple the idea of Germany from associations with Hitler, Nazis, and, quote, that war. What a war. My word, she's from Germany, Russell sings from mom and dad's point of view during the song's chorus, leaping several notes up to hit the first syllable of Germany. Well, it's the same old country, but the people have changed, the sun counters and reminds them of the country's romantic pre-Hitler reputation with, quote, its splendid castles and its fine cuisine. 
We might be made to assume our narrator and his folks are Americans of the era, but Russell's elocution is not very American-sounding. Note the complete absence of rhotic R's and the glottal G in the word gracious. He doesn't sound German exactly either, but Russell is clearly reaching across the Atlantic for inspiration in his singing. Girl from Germany is, as James Lowe identified, the most accessible song on the album by a good margin. Like Wonder Girl from the year before, this is a stripped-down pop song, free of hyper-fuzzed guitar, blue notes, noodly indulgent solos. Unlike Wonder Girl, Girl from Germany works on a kind of Sturm und Drang. Uh, Wonder Girl didn't boast much dynamic range, but Germany really takes you on a ride. There's a satisfying build from the verses to the chorus, punctuated by some great bass wobbles from Jim and Harley thundering on his drum set, not to mention the irresistible whistling just under Russell's vocals, which has the ironic effect of sounding like it could be attuned to accompany a Nazi military march. Girl from Germany was a great single with an ambitiously quirky but undeniably catchy vibe. Curiously, it wasn't even released until 1974, a year and a half after its parent album dropped. It came and went unnoticed in the U.S., but it did a lot better in Europe. In the wake of Sparks' massive 1974 hit, This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us. All the same... The song didn't bother the charts in any territory, but it became a favorite to play live all the way up to the present day. Next song of the album is Beaver Olindi. Um, the second song and eventual B-side to Girl from Germany is Beaver Olindi, a patched together Frankenstein monster of a song, Ziggy Stardust, it is not. Uh, the song begins 
inauspiciously with a very French-sounding accordion line that's, by the way, played by 14-year-old Kip Tulin. Kip was the brother of Electric Prunes' bassist Mark Tulin. James Lou knew him and suggested him for the accordion part. Poor young Kim was reportedly terrified to show up to play by himself in a professional Hollywood studio, but... Hey, he got the job done, and he is forever a part of Sparks' musical story for it. Daryl uh, easily uh, briefly explains Beaver Olindi to be about a fictional rock star, but it could very well also be about a male pubescent with delusions of grandeur about his nascent sexual power. Maybe they're the same person, I don't know. They say my voice is going to change. Sorry, I was not keeping up with the, um, the wrestle, of course. It cracks like Arctic ice flows, then it croaks like old folks' homes. Russell's voice sounds unusually small and unsure in the first two verses, quite like an awkward 13-year-old with one foot into puberty. But at the one-minute mark, Harley Feinstein's drums come galloping onto the scene, joined by a few sustained blasts of heavy metal guitar. Russell's beaver character then joins a crowd of a dozen or more shouting in football chant style, B-E-A-V-E-R-O-L-N-D-Y! Like our beaver is now important enough to replace Saturday night. The song descends back to earth for a middle eight that has Ron's keyboard sounding like a distant calliope and then rockets back into the stratosphere for the climax. You see me before, you see me 
much more when I'm as big as can be, as big as TV. Nothing is sacred. Song three, Nothing is Sacred, shares perhaps the most DNA of Sparks' subsequent Island Records period than anything else on Woofer. For one, Russell's falsetto finally hits that glass-shattering pitch that would be all over 1974's Kimono My House. Second, Ron ceaselessly pounds out piano chords at an A major scale, and it's his instrument that dominates the song and provides its hypnotic rhythmic foundation. Earl Mankey punctuates some verses with brief dissonant guitar arpeggios purposely threatening to throw the already dizzy song off balance. Note here, in um, Talent is an Asset, um, author Daryl uh, Isaiah um, refers to Earl Mankey's zoot horn rollo-like guitar. Now that is a reference to the rock pseudonym of Bill Harkelrode, who was uh, Captain Beefheart's guitarist at the time. Um, anyway, uh, Jim Mankey hangs out at the low end of his bass during the song, frequently joining Ron's chords. Three minutes into this drunken cabaret, the key changes and Russell beseeches whomever he's addressing to enjoy, quote, your newfound leisure time. The entire band, maybe double-tracked, I'm not sure, responds like a classroom of obedient children chanting in cartoon voices, I surely will appreciate our newfound leisure time. And then the band takes us out once more, ramping up the tempo a couple of times until the ride zooms off the rails and away into the horizon. Sacred is the one tune from Sparks' second album to point the way forward to the glam rock slash bubblegum slash music hall aesthetic that comprised their most commercially successful era and also one of a handful of immediate pleasures on the album. What the lyrics are about, I do not have a clue. But the next song. Nothing, no nothing, is
Here Comes Bob. Here Comes Bob is one of those early Spark songs that resists a live performance and concert as it's played mostly by a string quartet and augmented only by Ron's Tin Pan Alley piano stylings. The production seeks to emulate the phoned-in, all-treble sound of early Victrola records. The musical result is a much more whimsical take on Eleanor Rigsby, I suppose. But just who is Bob? Well, according to Dave Thompson in his biography, Number One Songs in Heaven, Bob may be based on a character from an erotically charged film from the 20s called A Smash-Up Romance, which plays with a paraphilia involving car crashes some 70 years before David Cronenberg's crash. A sample of Ron's lyrics seemed to confirm this theory. Sometimes I will stoop to hitting two-door coupes without the frills, but that is just for casual acquaintances, for stripped-down thrills, your car, girl, or mine, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter, no. A friend of producer James Lowe wrote the arrangements uh, for Here Comes Bob and may have been responsible for booking the musicians, each of whom showed up and left in, uh, purportedly, Rolls Royces for their brief turn in the studio. Here Comes Bob also presages a similar better-known genre exercise by Sparks and Under the Table with Her, which would show up on the 1975 album Indiscreet. When I spot the driver worth a second glance Foot to floorboard impact soon achieve But here comes Bob I ain't subtle in my ways of making friends Girl, this bubbledness was caused by my neglect Of course I'll pay him, by the way, my dear Here comes Bob I ain't subtle in my ways of making friends No I will stoop to hitting two door coops without the frills But that is just for casual acquaintances, for stripped down thrills Your car girl or mine, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter, no But for affairs with staying power, I go after limousines It's always nice when something big is acting as your go-between And for a group encounter, I'll hit buses, mobile homes or trains to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania It's hard to make acquaintances in our big town Those guys stare at nothing much at all But here comes Bob Next we have Moon Over Kentucky Moon Over Kentucky begins with Ron's plaintive piano and Russell effectively howling at the moon Then the dark clouds roll in and the song gets really scary Penned by Ron and Jim Mankey, Moon Over Kentucky sounds downright vampiric, with Russell's lecherous crooning and some truly haunting guitar work by Earl. The song is so melodramatic in its sound, so claustrophobic and threatening, it could well have been composed by Bertel Brecht or Kurt Weil. No doubt Weil was on Ron and Jim's brain as he was responsible for the oft-covered and eerily 
similarly named Southern Gothic song of Moon of Alabama, which, by the way, was covered by The Doors, David Bowie, and many others. Who knows what the narrator has in mind as Russell practically drools the line, Moon over Kentucky, take me with you, full moon over Kentucky, leave this mooring and seek some new rendezvous. Whatever he's got planned, it cannot be good. Rodgers and Hammerstein's classic show tune from The Sound of Music may seem an odd choice for an album single, but Sparks' version was such a live favorite, it nearly was released as one. The song starts off fairly faithful to the original, and other than some truly raucous playing by Earl in the rhythm section once it kicks in, the song doesn't stray that far from the original. A big exception is the sudden time signature at the so Verses where the band suddenly sounds like they could be playing Hava Nagila dancing under the chairs of Jewish newlyweds. Incidentally, this was the part of the song in the live shows of the time when Ron would throw a fistful of confetti into a box fan, hoping for a cannon-like effect that would cover the audience in shimmering bits of paper and mylar. It never worked quite the way he hoped for, but the audience loved it. By the way, one nagging question I have about this recording is, why does Russell swap out the lyric, a drop of golden sun, for a smiling drop of sun?
Then we have Angus Desire. This starts off with only a single sparse keyboard line accompanying Russell's schoolboy character who pines for his first crack at sex with a girl. Then Angus Desire kicks into a full bound then Angus Desire kicks into a full band shuffle, mimicking the narrator's angst and awkwardness. Now, according to which sources write, the lyrics are either about drawing nude models in class, those are, that's Russell's explanation, or it's a frustrated homosexual adolescent coupling in the absence of willing females. Next song is Underground. This is a Earl Mankey original, the sole Earl Mankey song on the album, and sadly the final one that he would write as a member of Sparks. Underground is a far more accessible tune than his previous contribution, the willfully obtuse and frankly silly uh, Biology 2. Thankfully, Underground still maintains the same quirkiness that identifies Mankey as such an influential force in Sparks' earliest years. The song fades in with a tight, syncopated groove with vocals that sound not unlike monkey vocalizations. Uh, although the song strays from the grip of the opening bars, which to my ear sound a bit like a talking head song from seven years in the future, it returns to the same phrasing several times across the song's nearly three minutes. Jim Mankey's bass rarely stops walking up and down the verses, and about 45 seconds in, he sinks with a bouncy ragtime piano passage by Ron. Musically, Underground is yet another example in early sparks of a song being stitched together from several completely distinct musical selections. It may be messy, but it's a hell of a lot of fun. Through Russell's gymnastic discanting, Menke's character is exhorting a young lover to accompany him beneath the surface of the earth where the newest, hippest scene is happening. It's a fun way to commit to a literal interpretation of a cultural underground. 
Then we have The Lure, written by Ron, almost entirely in French, with the help of a friend who happened to be fluent in French. The Louvre tells the tale of someone enjoying a guided tour of Paris's legendary museum. The music does a fine job of communicating the overwhelming sensation of facing the sublime, beginning with Ron playing a tinny tune fit for a music box, followed by him accompanying Russell's gallic crooning with a pulsing organ and eventually building into a dramatic full band vamping sounding quite a lot like early Roxy music. For the middle eight, Russell's, uh, he lighty dawes his way across a tightrope with a woozy waltz ready to break his fall. Once again on the album with The Louvre, Sparks assembles a pop song out of seemingly improbable parts and ends up with a rock and roll chimera that sounds like nothing before it.
Batteries not included. Sparks wanted a track on the album that would be brief enough to serve as a radio ad for the album itself, and the result was the micro-epic Batteries Not Included, which finds a child excited by a new toy, and then apoplectic at seeing the required batteries aren't in the package. Reportedly, Earl Mankey popped outside the studio before the recording session and returned with a young boy and his mother to get a child's voice recorded. I myself don't hear a child's voice in the song. Perhaps the band got the young Angelino to read a script for an actual commercial that would feature the song. If anyone knows the details surrounding this, please let me know. And I opened it up And the smile came to my face For the first time in a while Yes, the smile came to my face For the first time in a while I turned it on But nothing happened when I did Nothing happened at all I kicked it down the stairs I threw it at the wall Hey Batteries not included. Finally, whippings and apologies. Much like No More Mr. Nice Guys before, whippings and apologies is a woofer in Tweeter's clothing's big rock number to close out the album. I don't know how much thought Ron put into the SNM friendly lyrics, but the song finds the band getting their yayas out and incidentally would find new life much later in a glam rock cover band founded by none other than Harley Feinstein.
The band had agreed on a straightforward album cover for Woofer, um, nothing as postmodernist as the visual sampling of the General Motors ad uh, from the original printing of the first album. Uh, the five musicians assembled in Larry DuPont's photography studio in his basement at UCLA and sat facing the camera straight on, dressed, some of them wearing Pierre Cardin suits, and I think Harley was wearing a V-neck, uh, sat for what must have been an agonizingly dull session. The boredom must have got to Harley. There was a moment right as the camera clicked when Harley yanked Ron's chair out from underneath him, and the frantic blur that resulted from Harley's little prank and Ron's resulting flailing about in violent contrast to the sharp and stationary figures of the other three in the photo, that was the image that ended up being the cover for the album's uh, first printing. Uh, a woofer in tweeters' clothing fizzled. Bad. Uh, despite James Lowe's near-religious belief in the album's greatness, and Larry DuPont shared this view as well, it landed with a thud. Yes, they did play many nights to a healthy-sized audience at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Apocryphally, the waitresses at the Whiskey loved Sparks shows because they often sang drinking songs along with the usual repertoire which stimulated drink sales. Also, Sparks managed to score a five-night residency at Max's Kansas City in New York. There was the village voice uh, who offered measured praise, but none of any of this resulted in the all-important buzz or the more important album sales. According to Larry DuPont, Ron and Russell blamed Albert Grossman and probably Roy Silver and the label for failing to provide enough support and were often vociferous in their dissatisfaction. DuPont who had been spending months finessing Grossman and trying to convince him that Sparks was a worthy investment, also grew frustrated. Meanwhile, there was an opinion shared among all quarters that Sparks would fare better in a market that shared their aesthetic sensibilities. Someplace like England. Ron and Russell never made their love of England a secret, and they had the time of their lives on a backpacking trip several years before when they were still in college. They could get a toehold there and then make it back stateside where their American countrymen would catch the fever. After all, as James Lowe offered years later, sometimes America needs to be told when something's cool. Also, sometimes an international record label needs to be told by an old-school hard-ass like Roy Silver to shell out the dough and put these boys on a flight to London yesterday. Thank you for listening to All You Ever Think About Is Sparks. Please leave us the best possible review on your podcast provider. Like us on Facebook. Or write us at podcastsparks at gmail.com. Christian loves you all. But I don't. I am a computer girl and incapable of love. (laughs) 